Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of studying this book once again. We thank you for your great promises that you make in the book of the Revelation, that blessed is the one who reads it aloud, and blessed are those who hear it, and those who persevere in the things in it. And we thank you for the reminder in it that the time is near. So we pray that that would be of an encouragement to us as we think about this book, both the blessings and the nearness of your kingdom and the return of your Son. Um, and may we hope in these things as they approach in our near. So help us to study your word and to understand it aright by the help of your spirit. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been uh, studying cycle four um, and talking about the seven visions or episodes that John sees in this cycle. Um, and this, this cycle that is in many ways central to the organization of the book of the Revelation. If you have seven sections, then the fourth section um, of seven plays a sort of central role. Um, and I represented that to you on the, the handout that I handed out, um, where the, the, the church functions at sort of the center um, of this, of this seven-cycle presentation Revelation. You'll see that the D line is where we are right now, the, the, the middle of the chiasm, the mark of the center, which is often how the Bible directs attention to something um, by writing in this kind of structure. Um, and, and if you look at how the, psych, the first three cycles go and the last three cycles go, you'll notice that the first three cycles are about history, um, and the last three cycles are about what happens at the end of history. Um, the final judgment and the final vindication of the faithful. And so, in a, in a marvelous way, the revelation revolves around the history and the end of history. Um, and this central, pivotal section reminds us that through all that comes to us, the Lord will preserve His church throughout history until the end of history uh, comes. And so, that's what we've seen as this the theme of this cycle, the church is preserved by God Throughout history, we've seen seven visions or episodes. We've thought about six of the seven so far. Um, we've talked about the dragon, the devil, and the work he tried to do in destroying Christ, was unable to do that, has gone to war against the church in this world. Uh, we've talked about his minions, the beasts from the sea and the beasts from the earth um, that are engaged with the war against God's people, those three great enemies that have been presented to us, the devil, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, um, in many ways forming a kind of unholy trinity to oppose the living God. Um, we've seen that they've had great power, great wickedness, they do great damage um, in the world. But of course, we've only considered six of the seven visions. And the last vision that John sees is of the Lamb and of the redeemed. Um, so in the face of all of this great enemies and great damage and great wickedness, comes this wonderful picture of the Lamb and those He has redeemed in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Um, so this is the last of the visions in the fourth cycle, the seventh vision, which is of the Lamb and the redeemed, as we read in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. So I'll read that, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. 
And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Um, This is the last vision that John sees in this cycle, um, this wonderful vision of the Lamb and the redeemed. Um, The vision of triumph, once again, a vision of triumph set against the horrors of what John has seen. The vision of the Lamb triumphant on Mount Zion, uh, glorious and with his people. Um, And so again, you know, the questions that come up in the book of Revelation is often, is this a literal picture of Zion or is it a symbolic picture of Zion? Uh, Which which Zion is being spoken about here? Uh, Because some people are waiting for a literal fulfillment on Mount Zion of the promises of God. And is that what we're being taught to look for? Or is this the heavenly Zion that that Hebrews 12.22 talks about? Uh, the glorious picture of heaven. Uh, Well, throughout the book, heaven has been the dwelling place of God in the book of Revelation. We can think of Revelation 11, 19. Uh, But John hears a voice from heaven. Um, That's where God speaks. That's where God is enthroned. Um, When he sees the picture of the throne room, this is clearly a picture of heaven um, in verse 3. And so I think this vision obviously should be seen as the heavenly Zion. Uh, the heavenly place where the Lamb dwells uh, with his redeemed, uh, where God has enthroned his king just as he promised in Psalm 2. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Um, This is the heavenly Zion from which Christ reigns. And so he sees this vision of heaven, he sees Christ, and he sees his people with him, the 144,000. Now, that's familiar to us. We've seen the 144,000 before. We saw them back in Revelation 7, uh, those who were sealed um, against the judgment that was coming. Um, There, they were on the earth. They were being sealed against the judgment that was coming on the earth. Now, they're seen in heaven. Notice that now the 144,000 are on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Um, So, they were on earth, and they're now... In heaven. And one of the encouraging things that we should draw from this passage is how many of them are in heaven? All 144,000. There are 144,000 sealed on earth, there are 144,000 who live in heaven. Um, Not one of them has been lost. All of them have been translated from earth to heaven, all of them have been translated to glory. The Lamb has lost not one of those upon whom he put his seal. Um, It's a wonderful reminder that God does not lose his people. And just as in Revelation 7, it was a picture of the fullness of the people of God, so here it's a picture of the fullness of the people of God. Um, The whole people of God are there on Zion with the Lamb. Not one of them has been lost. All of them have been brought to glory. Um, All of them have the name of the Father and of the Lamb written on their foreheads. Um, Now, this connects to both the the previous sealing that we saw in Revelation 7, verse 4, but here it also stands in distinction to the mark of the beast that he was putting on people. Um, So, whereas some people wore the mark of the beast, this people wears the mark of the Father and of the Lamb. 
Um, they wear a different mark than those who are on the earth. Um, and what does that also tell us? It, it tells us that you're marked one way or another. You bear one mark or you bear another. There's no such thing as an undecided. Right? We're in a, we're in a political year, so there's polls all the time. Whether the polls are to be relied upon, we kind of learned from the last election that they might not be so reliable. But they're always talking to people who are undecided. Sometimes that's a big group of people. Sometimes that's a small group of people. Um, sometimes you, you wonder, who are these people? Um, I always think of that when they say, how, what kind of job do you think Congress is doing? And some people think they're doing a good job. Most people think they're doing a terrible job. And some people are like, oh, I don't know. And I always wonder, how do you not know? How do you not have an opinion on this? Anyway, um, that's just for free. It has nothing to do with the book of Revelation. Um, but we always have that in polls, right? This way, that way, undecided. This way, that way, I don't know. Um, and what Revelation is pointing out is there's no such position in the world as undecided. You're for God or you're against God. You're with him or you're against him. There's no middle ground. There's no middle position to really play. You're marked by God or you're marked by the beast. Um, you can think of the great theologian Bob Dylan who said, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Everybody wears the mark either of heaven or the mark of earth. Um, you, you're one or the other. Um, that's reminding us of that truth. There are those who are marked by the beast on earth, and those who are marked by the Father and the Lamb who are in heaven. And then we hear a voice from heaven, right? Or maybe we could better say a sound that is deep and loud and lifted up to the Lamb. Um, sometimes in the biblical languages, the word for sound and the word for voice are very similar. In Hebrew, it's the exact same word, and so you have to decide whether it's sound or voice. Um, but this is, a, this is a kind of sound that we hear elsewhere um, in the book of the Revelation, a sound that's deep and loud and lifted up in praise to the Lamb. Um, when we hear it in Revelation 19, verse 6, it's said to come from a great multitude. Um, it's the sound of many voices. Revelation 19, 6 says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And I think the picture we're being given here is of the 144,000 being that multitude of the redeemed that we will see again later in Revelation 19.6. Um, but again, symbolic as the whole people of God, calling out, crying out in worship to the Lamb, singing the new song. Um, and the sound is like a celebration of victory. Um, it's played on many harps, we're told. And so you, you get to see why people begin to think, you know, you go to heaven, you get wings, and you get a harp. Um, if you've ever wondered where harps come from, it's from passages like this. They played many harps. The harp is, a, is, a, is an instrument of rejoicing. It's an instrument of of, of everybody playing on their harps, making music to the Lord, and they're singing the new song, the, so, the new song of salvation. Now, what is the old song? Do you want to remember? Creation, right? Well, the old song is the song of creation, praising God as the God who made everything. Uh, the new song is the song of redemption, God who's redeemed what was made bad by the wickedness on the earth. And so this is the song of the redeemed, being raised up, 
to the Lord, singing the new song of salvation to the God who's done it. It's a, celebra- it's a celebration of victory. And then the passage gives us some interesting descriptions of what the people of God are like. Right, They're singing a new song before the throne in verse 3. Uh, no one could learn that song except those who'd been redeemed from the earth. And then they're described in, in detail in verses 4 and 5. Um, in, some, in somewhat surprising ways, maybe, for us. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Um, now again, is this literal or is this figurative? Does the, does the New Testament ever teach uh, that you have to remain as a virgin to be fit for God? Um, well, well, no, it doesn't teach us that. Um, there's a call to, to celibacy if you're living a single life. But there's nothing in the Bible that says married life somehow defiles a person. Um, so what is, what, is the, what is the purpose of this symbolic language? What is it driving at? Some people have said, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the virgin bride motif that we see in the Bible. That's often talking about God's people as a kind of virgin bride. Um, but you, you notice the, the way it's put here is it's describing people not as, as brides, but as husbands, right? These are men that's, that are being described here. Um, those who've not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Um, and so we might ask, what, what is really being gotten at here? What is the picture um, that God means for us to take away? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the takeaway from the Old Testament of the connection between the sexual purity that was required of those who would come to worship God. The purity that was required and how the Old Testament would often talk about when it would talk about Israel in her righteousness she would be talked about as a virgin. And when Israel was talked about in her unrighteousness, she would be spoken of as an adulteress. Right? And so in the Old Testament, obviously, there's much more language about Israel the adulteress than there is about Israel the virgin. But there is, there is that in the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy 23, as part of the law, used to say, you know, when the men go out to wage God's holy war, they have to keep themselves pure. Um, they have to keep themselves pure as, as a sign of their righteousness before the Lord. Um, you remember when David's men come looking for bread and they come to the, to the tabernacle, they, they ask if the priest has any bread and he has, says, I have nothing but the show bread, the bread of the presence that's in the house of the Lord, but I can only give that to you if your men are pure. And David says, yes, we've kept ourselves pure. The men have been kept from women because we knew we were on a holy task from God. And then he's willing to give it over to them. And so in the Old Testament, what this becomes a picture for is people that are fit to come and worship the Lord. And so what is the beautiful picture here that God is giving of his people? They are those who are fit to come and worship me. Um, they, They are pure before me. They are fit to worship. Paul uses this same kind of image in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, where he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. There still is that language of a fit worshiper being one who's, who's pure, who's able to come. Um, Jesus presents us to himself as a bride without spot or blemish. That's language that's still used even in the New Testament. And that's what this is a picture of here. Is this is a, this is a, a pure people. Uh, people that are characterized by their purity. Um, something that the church might be reluctant to say about itself here on earth, 
But this is a picture of how God sees his church, which is a wonderful encouragement. Because God says things about us that we might not be inclined to say about ourselves. Looking at our sin, looking at our misery, I don't know that all of us would say, I, I come before you in that kind of virginal pureness. Um, but that's how God describes his people. That's who they are. Uh, they are people who are, who are virginal in their purity, and they are people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Um, that's a wonderful uh, description as well. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Yeah? Well, Deuteronomy 23 talks about it, 9 through 11. So... Um, says, uncleanness in the camp. When you were encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If a man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal admission, he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come in the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water. As the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. Um, and so that was another example of kind of the, the ritual pureness that was required. So it was the, the cleanliness laws. So you became unclean, but had to go through a washing so it was not one of the major kind of uncleanness type things, so it could be washed away. Um, but you had to go through that process of going outside the camp washing and coming back in as clean. So it wasn't the kind of thing where you needed to go get the priest to clean you, but there was a kind of ritual involved in that to show that you're ready to go to war in purity because you're waging a holy war for God, right? That's how Israel's warfare was thought of, and so that's how you had to kind of be. So it was a ceremonial cleanness. Um, and so that's the first way they're described as being virginal in their purity, and then they're being described as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Um, there too, that's a wonderful way of thinking about how God looks at His people. Um, because Jesus said, that's the, that's the characteristics of my lambs, right? I'm the, I'm the great shepherd, I'm the good shepherd, and the, and the sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Um, and so here we're being described as faithful sheep to our shepherd, and not just sheep who follow him sometimes, but who follow him wherever he goes. Right? That's a wonderful picture of obedience and loyalty uh, to our God. It's also a contrast here with those who followed the beast. Right? There were those who were enamored by the beast, who were taken in by his lies and his blasphemies and his bold claims, his illusions of power, and they followed the beast. Um, but... What is God reminding us here? No, there are, but there are people of mine who don't follow the beast and who follow the shepherd wherever he goes. Uh, the people who follow the lamb. It's a wonderful distinction again between those who follow the beast and those who follow the lamb. And so the first characteristic is this kind of virginal purity. The second characteristic is that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And the third characteristic is that they are distinguished from the rest of mankind because of the lamb's work um, for them and in them. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and, their, and the Lamb. Um, they've been redeemed from mankind. They've been bought out of the world. Uh, they're the ones that the, that the Lamb has bought for Himself by His blood. Um, distinguished from the rest of the world, redeemed, and the first fruits um, of the Lamb. See that, the first fruits for God and for the Lamb. Um, that's a, that's a, a powerful Old Testament image as well, isn't it, of the first fruits. Um, sometimes the first fruits is the first part of a larger part to come. 
That's sometimes how first fruits is used. You know, the first fruits of the harvest show you, here's the first of it, and that promises there's more to come behind it. Um, that's how 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection of Christ. He's the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, and that promises that there are many more to follow after him, uh, which, which is a glorious picture of first fruits. Um, but also the first fruits all were pictured in the Old Testament as the part of the harvest that belonged to God. Remember that the first fruits were to be taken and devoted to God. You were to give of God the first of what you had. Um, and so that's the part that was holy to the Lord. Um, and so that's a wonderful picture. And I think that's pretty much what's being symbolized here. These are those who are devoted to God. These are the, the first fruits. They're, they're the holy portion that belongs to him. That's how he describes the church. And so it's wonderful descriptions, right? The church in purity, the church following faithfully, the church distinguished from the world as the redeemed and the first fruits that are holy to the Lord and distinguished as those who tell the truth. You see, that's the last of the distinctions. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Um, what, what was the work of the, the dragon and the beast? What, what was that completely involved in? It was involved in deception. In, in playing at being like God, in saying things that made you sound like you were God, um, trying to deceive people by power that looked like power from God, speaking lies to the world, um, that, that their, their work is characterized as lying. Right? That, that's how the, our Lord summarizes the business of the devil. Um, he, he's been a murderer from the beginning. He speaks lies. He's the father of lies. And when he speaks and lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's, he's just someone who lies. And those who serve him, are that's their characteristic as well. So what makes God's people different? They tell the truth. Right? There's not a lie found in their mouth. Um, and what's the summary on all of God's people? They are blameless. That's what this amounts to in the sight of the Lord. To be pure, to be those who follow, to be those who are distinguished from the world, to be those who are found with no lie in their mouth. What is the summary as God looks on us? What does he say? They are blameless. Um, isn't that the desire of God's people? To be blameless before the Lord. Isn't that what we want most of all? To, to shine forth to him. And it's a wonderful thing that we can say, because of the redeeming work of the Lamb, that we are blameless before him. Um, David sometimes argues that way in the Psalms, and that can be kind of hard for us to relate to at times. When he says, Lord, you know, look, I've been blameless before you, and yet these things are happening to me. And, you know, our tendency, I think, is to read that as good Calvinists and say, well, not blameless, though. Um, you're still a sinner, David, you know, you're not blameless. But what he's saying is, when you, when, you're, when you consider who you are in the world, under the saving work of God, you are blameless. And what David is really arguing is, I know this can't be a judgment on me because of my wickedness, for in your sight I'm blameless. Um, and so that's part of the struggle I'm having, is why is this happening to me? Because I'm blameless. I'm I'm righteous before you. That, that blamelessness is not held out to us as that impossible standard of perfection, but held out to us as being someone who's devoted to God, right? Who, who walks before God 
um, in faithfulness. But that's what God said when he came to Abraham in Genesis 17, walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant with you. Um, that, that, that's something that can characterize us. Um, that, that's why when we, for example, go through the Lord's Supper and go through the form and, and do the, the questions about self-evaluation, are you a sinner? Are you sorry for your sin? Do you put your faith and trust in Christ? And do you desire to live a godly life? Right? The question is not, do you perfectly live a godly life, or I'd be alone at the table and nobody would be eating or drinking anything. Because that's not the question. It's not, do you live a godly life, but is that what characterizes your life, is that you desire to live a godly life. Um, and that's what is encouraging to us here, is that these are the people that God reckons are blameless. They're in Christ and they're like Christ who was pure, who followed his father, who was distinguished from the rest of the world, who no lie was ever found in his mouth, and who was blameless. You see, we, we become like Christ because of what Christ has done. Um, because of his work, we have become like him. And so that's the blessing then that we can see in this fourth cycle of Revelation. Even in the midst of um, the history of persecution that the church will have to endure from the devil, from his minions, from all the struggles against the things we'll have to face. The blessing is that while the history of the church may have many spiritual struggles with apparent defeats, Christ is triumphant and will preserve his own. That this is the final word, the people of God in Zion, not the, the, the enemies triumphant. The enemies may seem to conquer for a time, but Christ is ultimately triumphant and will preserve his own. That's the blessing of, of the fourth cycle. Um, so any questions about that? Yeah, well, yeah, I think, sorry, did I cut? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the problem with that, you know, God and Satan are at war. Satan likes to masquerade like he's like God. That's that's what we saw in this cycle, right? The beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That's making fun of the kinds of things that God says about who is like me, you know, who can stand against me. Um, when his wrath is kindled, who can stand? You know, um, when he comes like a refiner's fire, who, who, can, who can endure the day of his appearing? There's a different quality. So the devil likes to masquerade as if he can, he's on equal terms with God. But the reality is even at his best, he's still a creature, He's not the creator who's blessed forever. There can't be a real war between an omnipotent creator and a, and a limited creation. That, that's, that, there, can't be, there can't be an equal footing war. And that's why it's important to listen to what, how, how that war is characterized in Revelation 12. There was an attempt on heaven, and that was put down by the servants of heaven, not even by the God of heaven. He put that down by his angels, like, Michael was enough for Satan. Like, Satan was not a match for Michael, much less the true and living God. And he threw him down, and now he makes war against the children of God, who are still aided by God from heaven, but the purpose of allowing that warfare to go forward is for his saving purpose, to gather his elect. That's why he tolerates it. But at the end, you know, what we'll find in Revelation is, it doesn't even take Michael to finally lock up the devil. God just tells an angel to go do it and just says, go chain him up. Um, and so there, there are people that, you know, it, it, 
there has been a tendency, I think, by some people to talk about spiritual warfare as if it's this pitched battle. But what it really represents is the triumph of Christ over the devil and the mopping up operation that's still going on. We're in the mopping up phase of the war. The, the battle's been lost already by the devil. And he's, try, he's just making war as he's being pushed back. Um, he's still in his hole. He can still strike out at times. He's still, he's still dangerous, but he's dangerous kind of like a dog on a chain. You know, if you, see, if you see a big pit bull on a chain and he looks mean, you know, and you think that chain is maybe eight feet long, you don't try to get like eight feet, one inch from the dog. You say like, that chain looks about eight feet long. I'm going to stay about 16 feet away because I don't want any piece of that dog, Right? Um, and that, that's kind of how the devil is, and that's why there are warnings in the Bible. Like, he's still dangerous, but he's limited in the danger he can do. He, he prowls around like a roaring lion, but if you resist him, he'll flee from you. Um, and so he's powerful, but he's not unlimited in power. And I think he likes to masquerade as if he has more power than he does. And so I think we have to make sure that people know that from the get-go, this has never been an equal footing kind of context contest, and the cross of Christ is a definitive defeat for the devil. He's lost. That was the victory of Christ over the devil, and now the, the serpent's head has been crushed, and he's just dying. Um, and he's going to thrash around in his death throes and do as much damage as he can do, but he's dying. Um, and that's how we have to see that spiritual warfare. Um, and I think that becomes clear as we continue to go on and now get into more the the final judgment parts of the Bible. Because if you look again at our handout, we've been talking about mostly what's happening in history, right? The church and its suffering must remain faithful. That's in history. Uh, the church's suffering in history is advancing the purposes of God. The church's suffering in history is less than the suffering of wicked in the history. That's all been about the historical struggle. The fourth cycle is that the church is preserved by God throughout history. So we've been thinking about there is this span of time, but this span of time is going to come to an end. God is going to preserve his people for this whole time, but this time is coming to an end. And cycle five is really when we turn the corner to start talking about the great theme of final judgment that's found in the last parts um, of this book. And these have their own character, but you'll see how the church is encouraged to faithfulness by the final judgment that will be visited on the wicked. Now, the church is vindicated for its faithfulness in the final judgment. And the church as the bride of Christ inherits the new earth as Babylon and the harlot and all the forces of wickedness are judged. And so we're turning the corner now to really think about the final judgment. And we see how these references to history and to final judgment play off of one another and relate back to things we've heard already. Um, that's why I kind of inserted those arrows that try to help point us to what corresponds to what in this structure. So as we think about the church is encouraged to faithfulness by the final judgment visited on the wicked, that relates to the church being reminded that even in history, the suffering of the wicked has been more than the suffering of the church. Um, and now the church is going to be comforted with that vision of the final judgment. Um, and so again, as we think about Revelation being the same story told from different perspectives, um, in, this, in this fifth cycle, what we're going to see is the church, in a sense, getting a vision of what's waiting for the wicked um, and being encouraged to faithfulness by seeing what it's like to have 
the judgment of God fall on you? Um, it, it sort of reminds me of the, the questions that come in the book of Malachi. Um, and when the, when the people of God in Malachi have the temerity to say to God, when God says, I've loved you, and they say, how have you loved us? Right, what a question to ask to God. Um, and he said, well, if you want to know what it looks like to not be loved by me, look at Edom. How do you know I love you? Because that's what it looks like if I don't love you. Um, Edom is a people I've destroyed, and I've said that they're destroyed, and they'll say, well, you destroyed us, but we'll build it up. And God says, they might build it up again. I'll destroy it. And it'll be called the wicked city and the people I'm angry with forever. Um, there's, a, there's a powerful sense in which sometimes God says, do you want to know what it likes, it's like to be loved and what it's like to be not loved? Then look at what it looks like when I don't love you. Look at what it looks like when you fall under the wrath of the living God. Um, and that, that's going to encourage the church to faithfulness as we see in cycle five, these seven angelic appearances. So that's, that's the seven we see in cycle five. And this will be a little bit unique and because, because John will say, will start out by saying, and then an angel came, and then an angel came, and then an angel came. And it'll kind of leave off of that pattern. But we'll still see the appearances of angels and see seven angelic appearances um, in cycle five, as, we, as the church is encouraged to faithfulness by, by the final judgment that's visited on the wicked. Um, this, is, this is by far the shortest cycle in the book of the Revelation. It really is only chapter 14, verses 6 through 20. Um, it's, it's a quick, um, vivid picture of the judgment that's poured out um, on the wicked. So this corresponds to the third cycle, which was the seven trumpets um, that was focused on the suffering of wicked in history. And this is going to be, again, the focus on the suffering of the wicked at the end of history. Um, so this cycle really begins our first consideration in a sense of the final judgment proper. Most of what we've been talking about is history, what goes on in history. And now we're talking about what happens at the end of history, this, the final judgment. Um, and so we're going to think about the angelic appearances uh, that appear in this section. And so the first angelic appearance that we see is in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 14. Um, and notice this is interesting. That's all interesting, but this is particularly interesting. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Um, now, why would I say that that's interesting? I'll tell you. I won't make you try to guess at this late hour. Um, why, why is that interesting? Well, because I said this is a scene of judgment. And where does the scene of judgment begin? It begins with a proclamation of the eternal gospel. And to whom is the gospel proclaimed? To those who dwell on the earth. Right? Who have always been identified as those who are opposed to the Lamb. There's an eternal gospel that is proclaimed to them who dwell on the earth. To every nation and language and tribe and people. Right? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. 
Uh, the message of God is made known in the earth. Um, and what function does this have then when the final judgment falls? Is it leaves no one without excuse? It leaves no one with an excuse before the Lord. Because everyone has heard it. Right, Those who dwell on the earth, every nation and tribe and language and people. There's no one who can say, I didn't know. Because the eternal gospel has been proclaimed to them. God reveals himself to the world. And how does God reveal himself to the world? Well, he first reveals himself in the world that he's made. Right? And that's the reference that this proclamation has to the world. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Right? That's an appeal to worship the creator who is blessed forever and whose creation testifies to his reality. Right? Think of what Paul said in Romans 1, 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What, what, is, this, what is this eternal gospel that's being proclaimed? To the whole world is you've seen the glory of the Lord in all the things that he's made. Fear the God who made heaven and earth and the seas and the springs of water. They're enough to testify to his eternal power um, and his divine nature. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the only way to, to deny that God has made them is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, and that's why the wrath of God is coming. God reveals himself naturally in the world. Um, special revelation reveals God in the world as well. Um, but this is a reminder to us that there's no one who can say, I didn't know. Because everyone who lives in heaven or lives on earth knows, about, knows something about the God of heaven just by looking at the things that are around us. Um, that's why I love watching nature documentaries, even if it's, you know, put out by the, the biggest, like, evolutionist of all time. It's still, you can watch it, and what I always come away from is, they're always so amazed by the nature that they speak in sort of pseudo-religious terms about it. Like, isn't it amazing the diversity of nature, and it's amazing what nature's accomplished, and how natural selection has worked to do this or that or the other thing. Like, even if you don't want to attribute it to God, you still end up speaking about it in quasi-religious terms. When you get down to the tiniest things that exist in the world, or you look out at the biggest things that exist in the universe, you still are blown away by just how big or how small they are, how intricate they are, how ma massive they are. And I love listening to people who would disavow any kind of religious feeling at all, talking in almost religious terms about nature. And it's because they're close to the truth, but not there. They realize there is something divine in what's been made. Um, 
but in unrighteousness they suppress the truth about what it's testifying to them. But it's interesting that God has his angel bearing that eternal gospel to the world before final judgment has fallen. Um, instructing the world to fear God. Uh, to every tribe and nation and tongue and people. There's not anyone that's left out of this proclamation of the gospel. Um, and so this is the good news in the broader sense that God is calling people to worship him. Because he's the great creator and worthy of worship. Um, I have a friend in, in L.A. who's a Reformed pastor and he always makes videos Sunday morning and he's always telling people to get to church. And one of the things that he always says is, because he's worthy. Even if there's no other reason for you to want to go to church, you should go to worship God because he's worthy. He's worthy of this worship. That's what the, the angel is proclaiming. This, is, this God is worthy of worship. He made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He's worthy of worshiping just for that reason. But it comes with a particular urgency because now is the hour of judgment. Right? He's always worthy of worship, but now there's a particular urgency in it because the hour of his judgment has come. There's an urgent call to people to fear God while there's time. Uh, this is a rare thing in the book of Revelation where you actually have a call to change. Uh, to say that it's not too late. Uh, fear God, glorify him, worship the creator because his, the hour of his judgment is coming. We have a picture here is what Je exactly what Jesus said would happen in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, this, is, this is the programmatic way the Lord has described the whole world. Um, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Um, worship is often at the center of the contrast drawn between the righteous and the wicked in Revelation. Faithful worship marks the people of God, and unwillingness to worship marks the, the, the wicked. Um, those who worship in idolatry um, and don't serve the true and living God. And it's a reminder to us that idolatry will be judged severely um, because it shows the, ultimately it shows the ingratitude of the creatures that God has made who refuse to worship the God who made them rather than uh, the gods who are nothing. Um, and so the serious wickedness involved in refusing to worship the creator is hard to overstate. Um, and so we have that first angelic appearance in God's grace, right? Still proclaiming the gospel that people would fear before the judgment falls because the judgment is coming. Um, Revelation 14, verse 8, then we see the second angelic appearance. So after this proclamation of the eternal gospel, in verse 8 we hear, and another angel, a second, see John is counting for us right now, Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Um, now a word of judgment comes against Babylon. Now this is the first mention of Babylon in the book of the Revelation. Uh, maybe we've all been waiting for Babylon to be mentioned. Maybe we all know that Babylon is mentioned and features in the book of the Revelation. But here is now the first mention of Babylon. 
Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Um, so again, whenever we have a literal place that's mentioned, the first thing we have to ask, is this literally Babylon or is it a symbolic Babylon? Um, because if you think it's a literal Babylon, then you're going to be looking for events in the Middle East, right? Because you'll kind of know where Babylon was, and then you'll try to figure out, is something happening in Babylon that's going to signal you know, the, the fulfillment of these prophecies? But Babylon cannot be literal Babylon. It has to be symbolic Babylon. Um, this, is one of those, this is one of those cases where if, if someone is trying to read Revelation literally, you can go with them and say, let's read the Bible literally and see, can this be literal Babylon? Um, let's see what the Bible has to say about Babylon. Um, I think it's clearly symbolic. I think it was clearly symbolic to John's readers. If you'd have said to John's readers, what is Babylon the Great? They would have said, the great and evil Rome. Rome is Babylon the Great. Um, you know, the way people used to say, you know, San Francisco is Babylon by the Bay. <laughs> you, know, they would, you know, there was that kind of, you know, common usage. Um, I'm not saying that. People used to say that. San Francisco is a lovely city. Um, I, want, I want that on record. Um, but, you know, there's, we, there's that usage, and we see that usage in Peter, First uh, Peter, he says, she who's in Babylon greets you. Um, that seems to be clearly not a reference to literal Babylon, but uh, to, to being in Rome. Um, but the New Testament speaks of Babylon, and the only time it's not referring to the Babylonian captivity, it uses it symbolically. Anytime the New Testament talks about Babylon, unless it's Matthew 1 recounting in the genealogy, the captivity in Babylon, or Stephen recounting the captivity of Babylon, everyone... Every other reference in the New Testament to Babylon is um, symbolic. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Paul. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.13. And it can't be literal because God literally said in the Old Testament that Babylon would be destroyed and never built again. That his pronouncement of destruction on Babylon was utter and complete for all time. Um, the Old Testament teaches very clearly that God said, when I destroy Babylon, literal Babylon, it will be destroyed and will never rise again. That that will be the severity of my judgment against Babylon, is that it will never rise again. Um, this is really an echo of Isaiah 21.9, where Isaiah said, fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the carved images of her gods has shattered to the ground. Babylon has fallen and it will never rise again. Its fate is described in the Old Testament as the same as Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be destroyed and never rise again. Um, Isaiah 13 verses 19 through 20 had already said, in Babylon the kingdom of the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there, no shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. Um, and Jeremiah sounded the same note in Jeremiah 50, 39 to 40. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. Um, it was destroyed for all time. It has to be symbolic, therefore. 
Um, it has to be symbolic. So the question then is, what does it symbolize, right? Once you've established that it's symbolic, what does Babylon uh, signify? Well, as I said, John's readers would have immediately thought of pagan Rome, but more generally, Babylon stands for all the great political and economic powers of the world which stand opposed to God. Um, Babylon will be presented in the book of Revelation as a human power in service to the beast and the dragon. Um, a human power in league with the beast and the dragon. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't have Babylon anymore that we, that we look to and know about. Um, it's not an existing country anymore. I mean, the, the piece of geography is still there, but Babylon as a city and nation doesn't exist anymore. Um, it was destroyed. Yeah, so, but, it, you know, some people will say, well, where was it in the Middle East? And then we go, like, Babylon, and then am I looking there geographically for things that are going to happen in the book of the Revelation? And it's like, no, that's not God's point at all. He had raised up Babylon to use to punish his people, but then in his sovereign judgment, he said, I'm going to raise them up for my purposes, but after they've attacked my people, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. So that people does not exist anymore. That, that entity of Babylon doesn't exist anymore um, as, a, as a world power. Um, or a world organization. Um, it symbolizes uh, great powers of this world. Um, Babylon in the book of Revelation, it's her job to foment immorality in the world. That's what Babylon does. Um, this immorality stands for all lawlessness and evil in the world. It's, it's any political, economic power that's in league with the devil and his purposes. Um, and Babylon is presented as a great seducer. Um, leading the world away from God. Um, and it represents, in the book of the Revelation, kind of the important truth that the real religion of many people in the world is power and wealth. Um, we've been seeing that in Micah's day, right? That, that people might have given lip service to the promises of God, but their real, their real love was power and wealth. Um, and that's often been what people are after in the world. Um, but Babylon is also a lesson that for all her power and ability to intoxicate the world with her wealth and power, um, ultimately she falls into judgment. It's, introduced that, it's interesting that the first time Babylon is introduced in the book of the Revelation, she's introduced as fallen. Right? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The, the first word is the last word against Babylon. That for all her power, for all her wealth, for all her immorality, for all her perceived power, um, she's fallen. Um, it, it, it shows us right from the beginning that power and wealth promise a lot, but they can't deliver. And it's important for us to remember that. Um, but Babylon is what leads all those who dwell on the earth away from God the Creator um, and taught them to, to attribute the blessings of earth to Babylon. Um, you know, Babylon was where Nebuchadnezzar stood and said, look at this great Babylon that I've built for my own glory. Look at what my own two hands have done. And that was even after God had said, you're going to be tempted to do that one day, and if you do it, I will make you like a dog out in the, out in the field. Um, and he did it anyway, <laughs> you know, knowing that what God had said would happen. And it shows you just how much you can rely on all the power and wealth in the world. Um, if the world won't acknowledge God as creator, how can it look to him for salvation. And so there's this important word uh, that's spoken by the second angel. Then we have the third angelic appearance. It's listed for us as the third um, in verses 9 through 13. 
a word, that, a word of warning about the beast, his mark, and the image that he made. So another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Um, so this is the, the third angelic appearance, a warning. Uh, the first warning is about the beast, uh, the personification of evil and false religion, uh, which undergirds all the power of Babylon. Um, all, the, all the different Babylons of this world, however, whatever symbolically they are, whether it's pagan Rome or other, other Babylons that come and go, they'll rise and fall, but there's a beast that's under them all. Um, there's something devilish about all of them. Um, even though they might be different kinds of things, there's something devilish in all of them. Um, you can see the devil's fingerprints all over them. Um, there's the beast that's underneath those things that rise and fall. He's the one inspiring them. He's the one directing them. Um, Babylon's will always lead to immorality, and the beast will always lead to idolatry. Idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. Uh, false worship and false life goes hand in hand. So there's a warning about the beast who will be underneath all these Babylons. There's a warning about the mark. All who follow the beast and receive the mark will have to drink from the cup of the wrath of God. Um, and this is a terrible picture and a terrible warning because to drink from the cup of God's anger is a terrible thing. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's a picture of fire and sulfur that lasts forever. It's a, it's a serious warning. And that's why this serious warning comes to us with a call to endure. Right? That, that God's people in the face of this dire judgment needs to... Um, needs to take warning and to, to hear what's being said um, in case the saints of God might, might, might miss what's being said here. God takes the time to, to address them directly, um, to, to remind them to continue to serve the Lord, um, that, that it might cost you to serve the Lord in Babylon, but the alternative is worse. It might cost you to serve the Lord living in Babylon. Uh, but the alternative to serving the Lord is worse. Here's a call to endurance. Endure in serving the Lord. The holy ones of God are encouraged to keep the commandments of God. Don't get into idolatry. Keep faith in Jesus. Don't get into idolatry. Don't get into immorality. Holy ones are called to persevere. Uh, we're reminded to persevere here. Um, and in addition, we have God's word of blessing. 
Because we know that faithfulness to God's word in the world will put you at odds with lots of things in this world. Babylon and the beast being two of them. Um, Call to faithfulness is a call that may well lead to many kinds of sacrifice and in, in this world that still might call some Christians to lay down their lives for the sake of the Lord. Um, sometimes we can be so, you know, tunnel vision on our own experience. You know, sometimes you have people say, well, nobody, you know, we don't die for the Lord anymore. Well, there are Christians dying for the Lord all over the world and more dying now than have ever died before for the sake of the gospel. Um, there are people dying for the Lord all over the world. And what, what is this word coming to them and saying? Yes, enduring in faithfulness may mean dying for the Lord. Uh, but it's a reminder here that if you die for the Lord... You're still blessed. It's still worth it. Service of the Lord doesn't go unremarked in glory. Uh, such faithfulness that the, that the Bible is calling for here might lead to martyrdom. Um, but the blessing for the martyrs who die in the faith of the Lord is although that they are dead, they are at rest. Right? That's, that's one of the glorious things about those who suffer and strive and die in the service of the Lord, is those who've had the hardest service finally come to rest. Right? And that, that's a wonderful thing to think, that even those saints that are working so hard to be faithful in the midst of such difficult circumstances, even if their lives are taken from them in the service of the Lord, where, to, where do they go? They go to rest. Right? That's why they're blessed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. They're at rest. Um, and that's a wonderful reminder for Christians because then the worst thing that, that the, the world and the devil can do to you actually ends up making, in a sense, you, you know, you're making yourself my best friend because the worst you do just means I go to rest. Right, Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Paul said, if you, even if you want to set the two side by side, to live for Christ is wonderful, but to die is gain, and it's actually better by far. And blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. What are the deeds that follow them? Right? It's their faithful endurance. It's their service to the Lord. It's their keeping the commandments of God, keeping faith in Jesus. This is not teaching that we merit our salvation, but this is saying, what are the deeds that are remembered of the people of God? It's their faith in Christ and the good works that they did, the way they walked in step with the Spirit. That's what's remembered in glory about the people of God. And that's the word of blessing and encouragement that comes to the saints. Um, endure. Endure to death. Because even those who've died, they're blessed. They've gone to their rest and their deeds follow them. Uh, so that's a word of encouragement to God's people. Uh, to those who are servants of the Lamb and whose works in life showed that they were servants of the Lamb. And that leads us into the, the final four angelic appearances that aren't so clearly delineated here, but I think are still um, present here with the angels who continue to appear. Um, the cycle begins with th three clear angels, you know, a first, a second, a third, 
we're told, so it's clearly counting them for us. It begins with a call for the gospel, the declaration of the fall of Babylon, the warning against worshiping the beast, and a reminder of the blessings of Christ. And after these appearances then come four appearances that picture the terrors of the final judgment for the wicked. Um, and the scene shifts and John sees Jesus enthroned in glory and power with a sharp sickle of judgment in his hand. Right, That's how the scene opens in chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Right here is a vision of the Lord. Uh, the Lord ready to work judgment. Um, and what is what do we see following that? Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Um, he comes not to order Jesus around. You might say, why is, it, why is there an angel telling Jesus what to do? But notice that the angel is a messenger who comes from the temple, uh, comes from the Father, in a sense, to the Son to say, now is the time to reap. And then we read in verse 16, um, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Um, the time for judgment has come, and then judgment falls. Um, the sickle swings and begins to reap. And so then in verse 17, we hear um, the fifth angelic appearance. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Um, so here comes another angel out of the temple. So here's the judgment from the Son and from the Father. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its, ripe, for its grapes are ripe. Um, and so there's our, our sixth angelic appearance. Um, and then the seventh angelic appearance is really a return of the fifth angel who begins to harvest. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And you'll see in your Bibles, your note says about 184 miles. Um, that's a lot of fury, right? Um, I, I like this measurement of as high as a horse's bridle, because even those of us who know very little about horses can still kind of guesstimate that, right? It's maybe about that high. Um, it's about that high, so it's about that deep, for 184 miles. Um, think about how, you know, when rivers flood over in certain areas and you get a lot of rain. That, that's a huge floodplain, isn't it? That's a huge picture of judgment. Um, the, the judgment is terrible. The blood from the press flows deep and far. Um, I think this is this sort of river of blood. I think in a sense it's, you know, it's the blood of grapes. Sometimes it's talked about so sort of like the grape juice, but it's it does duty for both, doesn't it? Um, the juice is a picture of the, the blood that flows from the judgment. I think there's an echo here of the Nile being turned to blood. Um, this flowing of the wrath of God. But it's a gruesome vision. 
Um, and it's a warning for all to flee from the terrible wrath to come. Um, and this wine press imagery will be picked up and expanded a bit when we get to Revelation chapter 19. Um, in fact, we'll see repeatedly that themes related to the final judgment in cycle 5 are elaborated in cycle 6 and 7. They'll focus in on certain parts of the judgment that we see revealed in cycle 5. Um, and so there's this terrible picture of judgment um, and so what is the blessing? You know, we've said that in every book, in every cycle, there's a, a blessing, that Revelation is also a book of, of blessing. And so what is the blessing of cycle five? Well, we could say that, that the blessing of cycle five is that all who heed the gospel call and avoid condemnation and coming into the final judgment are blessed. That all of this awfulness that we see here does not touch those who've been redeemed by the Lamb. Um, and so we avoid the awfulness of what comes to us or what comes to the wicked in this scene of judgment. It, it's brief, it's illustrative, and it's utterly final. Right? There's no, there's no sort of mincing words here. The judgment falls and it falls. Um, and, it, and it finishes those who, are, who stand opposed to the Lamb. So that's all of cycle five right there. Um, that's all of cycle five as we've thought about it. And I, I want to get briefly into cycle six. We won't, we won't try to do the whole cycle tonight, but I do want to talk a little bit about, about cycle six. So you can see from your, from your handout that cycle six is the church is vindicated for its faithfulness in the final judgment. Um, so this, is the, this will be the encouragement of the vindication of the church in the final judgment. And that corresponds to the church's suffering in history that we, that we read about in cycle two. So just as cycle five related to cycle three, the suffering of the wicked in history to the suffering of the wicked in the final judgment, we should expect to see themes from cycle six that relate to some of the themes we saw in cycle two. Um, remember that cycle two focused on the suffering of the saints and kind of rose to that point where the martyrs under the throne were calling out, how long, O oh Lord? Right, that was way back in, in chapter 6, verse 10, where they were crying out for the judgment of the earth. Um, and as, as this new scene comes in and we see seven bowls of plagues that are being poured out on the earth, uh, we should remember that we've seen golden bowls before. Um, that Again, these golden bowls of judgment being poured out are not things that we've not seen before. We've actually seen golden bowls before. Um, we saw them in Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we saw golden bowls that were full of incense that were the prayers of the saints that cried out, How long, O Lord, sovereign and true, before you will judge the earth, holy and true, before you will judge the earth and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And so I think we're seeing in this sixth cycle the very same bowls that were filled up with the prayers of the saints for help from God are now going to be poured out onto the wicked. So it's a wonderful way of, you know, they were filled up with prayers of the saints. How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood on the earth? And now what, what, what is being, going to be done with these bowls? They're going to be taken and poured out. Um, the Lord has heard the prayers of his people, 
um, and he's pouring out his judgment that they've prayed for on the wicked. And so cycle five concluded with that terrible picture of the, the flood, the wine press of God's fury, um, evoking images from uh, Exodus and from the judgment in terms of the Nile that flowed with blood. And cycle six is really going to pour on that notion of the plagues, the, the themes that are drawn from Exodus. And so what we have in this cycle is a, is a rather long introduction. Chapter 15 almost serves as the whole introduction to the, to the cycle, followed by the seven plagues that come in chapter 16. Um, and so that's, that's what we see happening. So um, I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter 15. Um, well, it's actually all of the chapter, now that I look at it again. Um, so let's read chapter 15 together and notice some of the things about uh, the introduction to this fifth, uh, sixth cycle. Chapter 15, verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Um, this, this wonderful picture of, of the heavenly throne room uh, presents to us three essential elements. We first see the appearance of the seven angels in verse 1. Um, we have an appearance of the saints in heaven in verses 2 through 4. Um, and we have the third element about the preparation of the angels for the judgment that's going to fall. And so in the first element, verse 1, we have the appearance of the seven angels in verse 1. Again, set in heaven. Heaven is the source for everything that happens in history. And John's vision of heaven shows the real truth about the future. Uh, that we have this great and amazing sign in heaven as these seven angels come bearing the seven plagues. Um, and again, if we think about a number of plagues, doesn't that take us back to Egypt and thinking about the plagues in Egypt. Here there are seven, uh, the number that's been completion in this book. Um, these clearly express the final judgment of God, and they're explicitly called the last. And with them we're told the wrath of God is finished. Um, that too, I think, is an echo of something else we've heard before. Uh, it is finished. When this happens, it is finished. Um, it's a reminder to us that judgment falls for us on Christ on his cross or it falls for us here. That one way or another, the justice of God will be finished. 
one way or another, the scripture, the word of God will be finished. And it's either finished for us in mercy with the cross of Christ where he takes the judgment that should have been poured out on us or we have the judgment poured out on ourselves. But either way, the just judgment of God will be finished. Um, And it's a wonderful reminder to us who've been saved by the cross of Christ that he finished the judgment for us for we could certainly never endure this kind of judgment. Um, those outside of Christ, the wrath of God will be poured until it's completed. Uh, but before we see the judgment, we have the angels who are going to pour it out and the saints that are in heaven. Um, and I think this is important for us to remind us once again, the judgments that are about to fall do not fall on the saints. These are judgments that are about to be poured out on the earth. And where are the saints? They are in heaven. Right? That becomes clear in verses 2 through 4. Uh, the saints are in heaven. Uh, They're safe from this judgment that's going to fall. Um, This judgment has nothing to do with them. They are seen along with the sea of glass and fire, which are pointing to God's heavenly temple. Um, One commentator suggests that this sea perhaps symbolizes the Red Sea. You know, if there are other allusions to Exodus, maybe this is another allusion to Exodus. Um, And if it is a, a picture of judgment, then it's another way of saying that the saints are safe. The judgment that's falling is not going to fall on them, just as it didn't fall on them at the Red Sea. Um, these are the saints who have conquered the beast. Um, it's, good or, it's good because Revelation 13, 7, the, the beast appeared to conquer. Um, but we're told here that the final word is the victory of the redeemed, not the victory of the beast. They've conquered by their faithfulness to Christ. They didn't worship the beast. They didn't receive his mark. They rejected him, his idolatry, and his immorality. And they are safe in heaven, faithfully singing to their God. Again, harps in hand, um, a symbol of the rejoicing. And we're told that they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. There's been tons of Old Testament allusions, but this is the first time that Moses' name is ever brought up. Um, And we're told that they sing the song of Moses and they sing the song of the Lamb. Now, this might be to show that this is an Old Testament and New Testament song. This is the song of Moses, and it's the song of the Lamb. It's, it's the whole church, Old Testament and New Testament, singing together. It might point to law and gospel. Right? John had said in his gospel that uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this might be a way of saying Old Testament, New Testament. It might be a way of saying law and gospel. It might be a sense of saying promise and fulfillment. Moses was the great servant over the house of God, but Christ comes as the son. Um, Moses was a wonderful servant. Christ is the son and the heir. Might be promise and fulfillment. Um, But we'll look more in depth on what the song constitutes um, as we think of what is this song that is called the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb um, as we get into it next time. Uh, So we'll, we'll stop there. That's probably enough for tonight. Um, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. When, when you hear the song of Moses, what is the song that you think of? Let my people go. Let my people go. <laughs> okay. Yeah that's, yeah, that's one that comes to mind, right? That's a great saying. <laughs> that's okay, I asked. Right? Um, there's a song at the end of Deuteronomy. Yeah. There's a song right about smack in the middle of Exodus, right after the Red Sea. 
I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and riders thrown into the sea. Um, I think that's what John intends for us to think about. So uh, that's Exodus 15. Um, so we'll talk more about that next time. Um, next, the next time we'd be scheduled normally would be March 11, but that's a day of classes. So I probably won't be back in time for the class. So our next class will be the 25th of March, okay, the 4th, because we won't have time to do it the 2nd. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Um, we can talk about it when we get there, but um, I'm not sure the Bible teaches us that we'll forget about everybody that wasn't. I'm not sure that's a... That might be what people try to suggest to say, how can we not be sad in heaven over the people that aren't there? I mean, maybe that's sort of like, how do I not be sad about my loved ones who don't know Christ if I'm in heaven and they're not, you know. So that might be ways that people try to deal with that potential problem. But, um, you know, I think, I, I don't think that that's necessarily the way you solve that problem. I think probably it's more the case that we'll have a clearer view of God's justice and holiness and realize that everything he does is right, no matter who that affected in our own lives, as hard as that might be to, I think it was a hymn that used to say, earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Um, and I think that's probably more the, the way to look at it. Any other questions? All right, let's close our time with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this clear picture of your just judgment that will fall against the wicked in this world, we know that you are the rock and all your ways are perfect and that you're as perfect as in judgment as you are in mercy. But your picture of judgment is certainly hard and our hearts go out to those who do not know Christ and who don't realize that they are in the midst of the hour of judgment and don't fear you who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, that they have not reckoned with you or with your son and we fear for them. We Pray that you would help us to call to them urgently and also to continue to intercede for them in prayer. And when we reflect on your goodness to us, that you saved us out of the wrath to come, not because of anything good in us, but purely out of your grace, and that you save us on account of faith, and even that faith is not ours, but a gift from you. We realize what debtors we are to your grace and just how much we have escaped the wrath to come solely by your act of mercy and by the suffering and death of your son. These verses help us to contemplate also what he suffered to redeem us. So we pray, Lord, that his suffering would fill us with gratitude, that he was willing to, that he loved us enough to be willing to die that kind of death and offer that kind of sacrifice. Pray that you would give us the strength to bear up in this world as faithful witnesses of his. You would help us by your Holy Spirit to hold true to the faith and to walk in accordance with your commandments, even when uh, the world is leading us in every other direction. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to reach that blessed rest of heaven. Pray that we would take our lesson from those who are enduring in this world even unto death for the sake of the name. We pray that you would be with your church in suffering and watch over them. Help us to pray for them who are suffering in ways we don't have to. And Lord, may you join us all together in that blessedness of heavenly glory 
uh, where we are at rest from this world. How we look forward to that rest together with you and the Lamb and the Spirit in that place of blessedness forever. May that come quickly. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.